Greetings. You are about to hear one of a multi-part series on the dedication of Solomon's Temple, entitled Restore the Glory, by myself, Dan Augsburger. I shared these presentations in the fall of 2015 in the Stanbrough Park SDA Church in Watford, England, which is a northern suburb of London. In this series, we look at the construction and the dedication of Solomon's Temple. In doing so, however, we compare the building and construction of that temple with the prior construction and dedication of the first tabernacle in the wilderness and the subsequent construction and dedication of the second temple, which was constructed after the exile. We will also look at the construction and the dedication of the temple of our hearts. I believe you will learn much from these presentations and will be blessed. I hope you'll be able to hear all of them. They can be found at my website, discipleheart.com. If you have further questions or want to communicate with me for some other reason, you can write me at path to prayer, P A T H number two prayer, path to prayer at gmail, G M A I L, gmail.com. Path to prayer at gmail.com. Once again, this is Dan Augsburger. I appreciate your taking the time to listen, and I pray that you will be blessed. Welcome. So good to see all of you out again this evening. It's wonderful, and as you probably noticed coming in, some pews are going in next door, so uh, we'll even have a place to meet uh, later this week, so uh, that's good. I'd like to say a word of prayer before I say anything else. Father in heaven, I thank you that uh, we've come together to hear from you, uh, yours truly included. Lord, I never uh, spend any time sharing anything about you when I don't learn myself. So, Father, we come to you collectively asking that you would draw near and that you'd bless us. And, Father, I ask that you would uh, take my thoughts and my opinions and anything that might be there of self and remove it so that they would hear what you want to communicate with them. It's a sobering responsibility. Father, forgive us of that which needs forgiving this evening. Purge us, Father, of self. And send the Holy Spirit, please that we might become that vibrant, living temple of the heart that we are wanting to be for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This evening we want to talk about distractions. Interestingly enough, uh, and something that most people don't perhaps think about much, much of the mischief that came later in the, in the land of Israel, in the time of the kings, began with Solomon and the building of the temple. And we don't think of it much. But tonight we need to, because it's certainly a part of the story. And I want to share a story from our own history that speaks to uh, a potential distraction. And that is of our own, one of our own pioneers, a man by the name of James White. He was married to Ellen White. In his uh, Life Instances, the book that he wrote about his life, he talks about the fact that he was an extremely feeble child. When he was less than three years old, he had what uh, doctors called worm fever, which resulted in fits and which turned his eyes cross-eyed, turned them in, and it nearly destroyed his sight. And he said, from that time, I was having a hard time reading. I was feeble, nervous, partially blind. And it wasn't until he was 16, when his eyes finally corrected themselves, that he again became healthy and strong. But even then, it was with great effort that he could read a single 
verse of the Bible. Now, this is a, a man who is 16. Um, he finally decided to go to school at the age of 19. Uh, his friends had assured him it was too late and uh, told him to continue farming. But he said, I could not take their advice. So at the age of 19, he went to school. And there he spent 12 weeks going to school at the age of 19. That was his initial schooling. How many of you knew that, that James White began school at the age of 19? Had all the 12 weeks the first year. And then he, um, he was out of school and he taught for a year and then he came back. And uh, he actually had a little bit more school. His total schooling for his entire life was all of 29 weeks. Pretty amazing. Someone who wrote books and wrote so much in the Review and Herald. I think that he and Ellen had a special understanding because neither one of them went to school very much. They could understand. Anyway, so he attended school there in that first term, and then when he left, he actually worked in a, um, in a mill, a raw hand in a sawmill. And he said while there he cut his ankle, which resulted in a permanent weakness, and he said for 26 years when he's writing this, he says, I've been unable to walk and bear weight on my left heel. So when you read of, uh, for example, him walking so many miles to take something to the printing press, you can almost imagine that he was limping as he went and limping as he came back. God loves to show what he can do through weak uh, and very human vessels. Anyway, as I said, he decided to go back to school and... Um, and there he acquired uh, learning in uh, arithmetic and in grammar and things like that. The other students had money, but he did not. So he says, I wore old clothes while my classmates were new and lived three months on cornmeal pudding, prepared by myself and a few raw apples while my classmates were living at the boarding house enjoying the conveniences and the luxuries of that environment. He says, and I quote him, I have attended high school in all 29 weeks, and my entire cost of tuition, books, and board have not exceeded uh, $50. And so uh, his life continued. Now, backing up just a little bit, at the age of 15, uh, James White uh, was baptized and united with the Christian church. But he says, at the age of 20, I buried myself in the spirit of study and school teaching and had lain down the cross. Okay, let me repeat that. He said, at the age of 20, I buried myself in my studies and I laid down the cross, never descended to the common sins, yet I love this world more than I love Jesus. Let me repeat this. He said, I got to the point where I love the world and education more than I love Jesus and I was worshiping education instead of the God of heaven. And in this state of mind, I returned home from my second and last school when my mother surprised me by saying, James, brother Oaks of Boston is lecturing at the meeting house about Jesus coming soon. He said, I had regarded Millerism as wild fanaticism, and this had been confirmed by hearing of some of the preachers. But now my mother, in whose judgment and piety I had great confidence, uh, shocked me and distressed me because she said I needed to go and listen to him. He said... How could it be so? I was unprepared to go and listen. I was unprepared to have my life changed because I had already made my plans for what I wanted to do the rest of my life. And so, uh, in spite of, of his desires to go into schooling, his mother was insistent that he needed to go. He raised up objection after objection, but she had good answers. 
He said she met calmly and pleasantly all my objections and finally helped me to believe that I should take the time to go. And it was there in the house of God where I heard of the love of Jesus and the glory of his appearing and I was deeply impressed and came to accept that which I had heard. Okay? So as I returned to the Lord, it was with strong convictions that I should renounce my worldly plans and give myself to the work of warning the people to prepare for the day of God. They didn't know that he was coming, but I knew. We live in that kind of situation today, don't we? Many are looking for something better in, in perhaps sincere ways as they understand things, but not in the best places. As he was mulling over in his mind the need to go back to, to warn people, he was led to think of the scholars at his school. He said, I had had 50 scholars. Some of them were my own age. Some were older. My school was a happy one. I loved them, and they loved me. And the voice kept coming, go back and warn your scholars. As I had found comfort in prayer, I began to pray for my scholars and would sometimes wake myself in the night and be praying for them. And a strong impression continued, visit your scholars from house to house and pray with them. Well, I could not conceive of a heavier cross to bear to go back to my school students and pray with them. You see, I prayed to be excused. I prayed to pursue my studies, but no relief came. Prayed for clear evidence, but the same impression seemed to say, go and visit your scholars. In this state of mind, I went into my father's field hoping that I could work off my convictions. But they followed me and they increased. I went to the grove to pray for relief, but none came. The impression continued, visit your scholars, was ever more distinct. My spirit rose in rebellion, he said, against God, and I recklessly said, I will not go, and it was accompanied by a firm stamp on the ground, showing God that he intended to have his own way. In five minutes, he was a man of action. In five minutes, he says, I was at the house packing my books and my clothes for Newport Academy, because where in the past schooling had always really given me great joy, he thought to himself, I can go back and study again. So the next morning, I secured my boarding place, took my position, several classes in the school, and commenced study with a will, listen, to drive off my convictions. But this did not succeed. I became distressed and agitated. I spent several hours poring over my books. I tried to call to mind what I'd been studying, but this I could not do, for my mental confusion had become complete. He said, I was studying and studying, but I couldn't remember at all what I was studying. You see, the Spirit of God had followed him into the schoolroom in mercy, notwithstanding his rebellion, and gave him no rest. Finally, I resolved that I would do my duty and immediately took my cap and went directly from the door to the schoolroom on foot to the town of Troy, the place where I had been teaching. I had gone but a few rods. I had gone but just a, a few yards out, a few meters out of the house, out of the schoolroom rather, and suddenly the joy of God came into my mind and heaven seemed to shine around me and I raised my hands and praised God with a voice of triumph. There's nothing worse than trying to run away from God. If we could talk to Jonah, he would, he would agree. And James White was trying to run away and so he buried himself in farming and then he tried to pray and then he went to school, but nothing worked. But when he decided to obey, immediately the joy came back into his life that had been missing before. It's interesting, he began walking towards that school and, and he was impressed 
as he was going by a house that he should stop there, but he didn't want to. He didn't want to knock on the door. But he thought to himself, I can go and ask for a drink of water. So that's what he did. He knocked on the door, and when the man appeared, he asked for a drink of water, and it was obvious the man had been crying, and he was invited in and, and learned about how that man had died, and God had led him at the right moment to, as he put it, to help set up the family altar. The next morning he left, and he was going down the road again and was impressed to stop at another house. And when he went to the door, why, lo and behold, it was one of his students that was there. They just moved there. And uh, she was all excited and, and, and told her mother, and they con- conversed, and he shared why he was there. And she said, hold on, I will send others out to get the neighbors. And soon he said he had a congregation of 20 to 25 people. And there he shared, he said, when we prayed, he said, I discovered that none of them had any assurance. And he said, God had provided me the congregation. And from that time, he continued serving God the rest of his life. And as we spend some time now in prayer, the question I have for you this evening is, are there distractions in your life that are causing you to avoid a calling of God in your life? Maybe only to witness to the people in your neighborhood. Maybe to do something that God has put a conviction on, but, but spend time and ask God, to what degree have you fully given yourself to God? And if there are distractions, what might they be? And ask God to give you the willingness to get rid of every distraction so there will be nothing in the way, in the temple of your heart that the Holy Spirit wants to take over. Let's spend some quiet time praying on our own, talking to God about where we stand with him tonight, especially so far as distractions go in our lives. Thank you. Father, as we now go into the rest of our meeting this evening, send the Holy Spirit and speak to each one of our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I love church history. And uh, speaking of distractions, both George Mueller and Hudson Taylor, one being the founder of the orphanage in Bristol, the other being the founder of the China Inland Mission, faced a very significant distraction when they had given their lives to Jesus. And one of the great temptations, and it's still a temptation today, was uh, they were both in love with, with someone. George Mueller was in love with, with a, a young woman and he realized that uh, if he were to continue that relationship, his relationship with Jesus would not be very good. And so finally he had to turn away from that relationship because he had to choose between her and between really serving God. And Hudson Taylor, um, he was in love with, with a young woman as well. And uh, it wasn't really a spiritual issue, but he knew that he'd been called to go to China. And... She had no interest in going to China and he was going to have to choose between serving God or, you know, staying in that relationship. And uh, he did his best to get the relationship to work. I understand that, in fact, he tried twice, if I read the biographies correctly. But in the end, he preferred to go to China. And uh, it's interesting that George Mueller later would marry Mary Mueller and he said they had a perfect marriage. Perfect marriage. They said they said there wasn't a single moment when he looked upon Mary without a sense of joy. It's possible to have great marriages. And Hudson Taylor would later marry Maria Dyer, and they also had a, a wonderful, wonderful marriage. 
I think both of them would have said, it's good to let God make the choice. But those they had, they were distracted. And I believe that Satan works very, very hard to bring a distraction into our lives, uh, if he can, to keep us from seeking that which is, which is best. Um, anyway, so as we continue this evening, I want to share just a, a few final thoughts on what we were discussing last evening. Um, remember we were discussing about building for eternity and how uh, Solomon had, had made this beautiful temple. But here is a, a point that I want to reemphasize as we begin. The tabernacle was a beautiful, beautiful building, uh, especially on the inside. And it taught of God's love and care for his people in unmistakable ways. Solomon's temple was beautiful on the inside and the outside, so much so that it became known as one of the eight wonders of the ancient world. And people still speak of Solomon's temple. But listen very carefully. Solomon's temple's beauty was transient. In other words, it would change, okay? Because the people became attached to the physical building and forgot the eternal realities that were represented. It is easy when there is something beautiful to think so much about the building that we forget about the fact that the church is especially a spiritual entity. You mustn't forget that as you go into your new sanctuary, okay? It's a beautiful temple, but, but the people forgot in their attachment to the physical building, and because it was so beautiful, and there was such a sense that God had blessed them, it was almost like they hid behind the temple when they were disobeying. But later, God did what? He allowed the temple to be destroyed so that that crutch would be taken away. The second temple was much more humble, and there wasn't much to attract people, at least so far as Solomon's temple was concerned. But it was great because the Lord Jesus came to this world, taught in that temple, and brought a manifestation that even Solomon's temple in all of its beauty couldn't begin to approach. This is the key point. You might have a, a, a church made of solid gold, you know, a church that is more beautiful than anything that we could possibly imagine. But if Jesus were to walk into your church, you discover that that gold looked pretty plain compared to him. And you have the opportunity to have a church that is so beautiful that the Holy Spirit will send people because they will have heard that Jesus is in your church. My brothers and sisters, do not forget that the second temple was more beautiful than Solomon's temple. And remember, when Jesus was on the earth, what he said to the disciples. He said, I say to you most assuredly, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in me. Jesus said, you will do even greater works than I have done. That means the temple of the heart in 2015 potentially can be greater than the second temple or Solomon's temple. The beauty of a church is not in a building, it's in the people. Did you hear me? People are not attracted by fancy buildings. There are fancy buildings all around. We cannot compete on the world's terms. Did you hear me? But when people see a love between the members, when they see a respect for God, it does something very powerful. And we're going to talk about that more this week. 
But the point is, is that we have the opportunity to do something very wonderful. But in saying that, in saying that, we must not allow ourselves to get distracted like Solomon was distracted. And so we want to continue and talk about um, the decisions that were made that, that distracted Solomon and the decisions we must make so that we will not be distracted. Here's a quotation as we begin. It is our work to know our special failings and sins which cause darkness and spiritual feebleness and quench out our first love. We all have different vulnerabilities, temptations, interests that cause us to have less interest in God. All of us have a, a different set. Is it worldliness? Is it selfishness? Is it pride? Is it striving to be first? Is there anything that is our special vulnerability? We need to be careful. Okay? Now, turn, if you would, in your Bibles now to 1 Kings 3. 1 Kings 3. And we're going to look at a couple of points, but it all starts with these first few verses. And I wish I could avoid the verses, but we can't. These verses come actually before Solomon has that, that conversation at night with God. Verse 1. 1 Kings chapter 3. Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father, David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Okay, so there in chapter 3, we notice a couple of things. Number one, he made a treaty with the Pharaoh of Egypt. Number two, he married the Pharaoh's daughter. Three, the people were sacrificing at high places because no provision had been made for them in the, in the bustle of building that new temple. And finally, though he loved the statutes of his father, uh, yet he continued to sacrifice and burn incense at the high places that were not sanctioned by God. Now we may think that that isn't that significant, uh, those aren't that significant, but in the, in the larger picture, you're going to find that some very significant things happen. And these are the things. I'm going to mention them and then we're going to look at them individually. Number one, the people had been told they were not to make any alliances with foreign kings. And when he made that alliance, he was putting himself on shaky ground. Number two, they've been forbidden about marrying a foreign wife. Number three, he worshipped in places not sacred, made sacred by God. And something that surprised me in my study, he had a serious issue with the love of display, and that love of display led to many, many other problems. Next, he sought skilled workers as a result from the surrounding nations. And finally, Solomon's temple, instead of being built for the name of the Lord, became known as Solomon's temple 
instead of God's temple. Okay? Let's look at these things individually. 1 Kings 3, we just read it, how he made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And I'm going to read the verses for you. Um, or you can. There are not too many verses tonight. Look at Exodus, if you want, 23, 32. Exodus 23, 32. It says there, You shall make no covenant with them. Exodus 23, 32. You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And then in Judges chapter 2, Judges chapter 2, verse 2, it says there, And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Okay, They had gone ahead and made an alliance at that point. They had not driven everyone else. They'd allowed some of the Canaanites to stay. And God said, this is against what I told you to do. Well, Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh. We all know that Solomon also married, from what we read in 1 Kings, he married Pharaoh's daughter. What did it eventually lead to? What did it eventually lead to? Sad, sad story. Look at 1 Kings 11, if you would. 1 Kings 11. It's quite an amazing catalog. But King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites. Okay, 1 Kings 11, starting in verse 1. He loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Have you ever noticed how much people cling sometimes to things that they shouldn't cling to? Yeah. By the way, we've all done it. Let's be honest, right? We've all done it. And he had, it says, 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives did what? They turned away his heart. I don't know if Solomon was thinking that they would, that, that in marrying Pharaoh's daughter, that eventually he would have 700 wives and 300 concubines and that these wives would turn away his heart for it was so, says verse 4, when Solomon was old that his wife turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father. Then he built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, etc., etc., Verse 8, and he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So, Sol- so the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice, etc. I don't think Solomon thought at all where that marriage would lead him. But later he was not only serving God, he was actively serving foreign pagan idols and building altars and temples for all of his wives. What a sad thing for a man who was called the, the wisest man who ever lived. 
Okay. Um, so he he married uh, Pharaoh's daughter, and it caused great great problems. Then we learned also that Solomon worshipped in places uh, that had not been sanctioned by God. He should have made provision to make sure that the people could worship, continue worshiping God. Look, if you would, at Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 2 to 6. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 2 to 6. It says there, You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all of his tribes to put his name for his dwelling place. And there you shall go. They were told to go and find those high places and destroy the idols, destroy the altars, to have nothing left of those things because God knew what a temptation they would be. A temptation is a temptation because it's very attractive, right? And he was told, and the people were told very, very clearly that you are not to allow that to take place. What resulted from his allowing these influences to come back in through his foreign wives. If you look at the history of Israel, the high places remained. And it was a common thing that they would, that they would destroy all the idols, but they'd leave the high place. And here's my question for you. Is there such a thing as a high place in our day? And are there idols that we're tempted by in our day? What is an idol? I was talking about it this morning with the pastors. An idol is anything that causes you to be less willing to serve God. An idol is anything that you love God, that you love more than, than you love God. Okay? And so there are many, many things that can be idols in our day. Well, what's the high place? In my opinion, the high place is self. I don't want anyone to tell me what I should do. I want my own opinion. I want my own way. Okay? What did Jesus call us to? Jesus said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, what? Daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Okay? Jesus called us to take up the cross and take the narrow way. Here's a quotation for you. Self must die and not have a resurrection every other day. This comes from manuscript releases, if you're wondering, volume 21. Self must die and not have a resurrection every other day. The words must be truly spoken. I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The I is a very hard personality to kill. Would you agree? Very hard personality to kill. I rises into life in full proportions if given the least opportunity or encouragement. Then confident in their own supposed wisdom, men forsake the right way. You see, Solomon had pretty much surrendered everything, but for some reason, he hadn't been willing to get rid of everything. And it was those things that he left that, 
that perhaps, you know, not only caused him to sin, but I believe caused many others to sin as well. Now then, another statement. The new birth is a rare experience in this age of the world. Okay? Being born again is rare. Why? This is the reason why there are so many perplexities in the church. Many, so many who assume the name of Christ are unsanctified and unholy. They've been baptized, but they were buried alive. They were baptized, but they were buried alive. Self did not die, and therefore they did not rise to newness of life in Christ. I read that when Jesus is living in me, Jesus recognizes Jesus in my brother and sister, and we get along, because Jesus never fights against Jesus. Did you hear me? The reason there's so much perplexity in the church is because it's easy to be baptized, but buried alive. If we really want to walk with Jesus, we must take up the cross, which is about dying completely to self and saying, God, I choose not to have my will. I only want your will to be done. But we go further. Solomon had a great love of display. 1 Timothy 6, verse 9, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Okay? Those who desire to be rich, those who have a desire for that which is able to display, fall into temptations and snares. Now, and I'm just giving you some some comments based on what I'm reading. Solomon was so interested in outward display that he lost his ongoing connection with Jesus. He sold his honor and integrity of character in seeking to glorify himself before the world and finally became a despot supporting his extravagance by a grinding taxation upon the people. First he became corrupt at heart, then he apostatized from God and finally became a worshiper of idols. It was in his desire for display that he began to have bigger and bigger dreams for his temple. He began to tax the people more and more, make life more and more difficult until finally he became a despot and in the separation that occurred in, in, in that way of relating to other people, he began to worship foreign gods or worldly values. Did you hear me? I've just changed it from the past to the present. How do I know this is true? When his son Rehoboam came to the throne, they came and they begged him, if you'll just make things a little easier, we'll serve you. Because they said, it's been horribly difficult. But Rehoboam refused, and because of that, he lost 10 of the 12 tribes. Solomon became a despot. An ambition to excel all other nations in power and grandeur led him to pervert for his own selfish purposes the gifts that God had given him. The money which should have been held in sacred trust for those who were needy, for the extension of God's kingdom, was put in his selfish projects. The king overlooked the need of acquiring beauty and perfection of character. Okay? From the wisest and most merciful of rulers, he degenerated into a, a tyrant. He became oppressive. He taxed and taxed some more. Soon the people were unhappy 
And here's a key point. He lost sight of the fact that if there is influence by a people of God, it comes through our obedience and our relationship with God. Okay? We sometimes think it's in, you know, what we have that gives us influence. That's what the world says. Or the power, the position that we have. But God says, those that have real influence in this world are those who are walking with me. Okay? And so he began to exalt himself and great difficulty came. What was Jesus' desire? He was humble, right? And he has called us to that kind of life. We're going to learn about that more later. But in seeking to, for display, in seeking to be you know, the greatest king and to have the most beautiful temple, the most beautiful capital, he became an oppressive man. And the desire for display led him to become a despot and later to, to serve foreign gods. Something else happened. Now look, if you would, at Second Chronicles chapter 7. Second Chronicles chapter 7. Second Chronicles 2 verse 7. I apologize. Second Chronicles chapter 2 verse 7. He wrote Hiram, the king of Tyre, therefore send me at once, send me at once a man skillful to work in gold and silver, in bronze and iron, in purple and crimson and blue, with skill to engrave with the skillful men who are with me in Judah and Jerusalem, whom David my father provided, etc. When God had instructed Moses regarding the building of the first tabernacle, and I'll just tell you what happened, in Exodus 31, it reads as follows. See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works to work in gold, silver, bronze, etc. God providentially enabled, equipped a man of his own people to have great skill to make all the beautiful things needed in that first tabernacle. Now it's interesting, if you read the story carefully, when Hiram hears how God is blessing Solomon, he sends his servants, and, and Solomon responds, but instead of saying God is going to bless us, he says, choose for me a skilled worker, and he let a pagan king choose the supervisor of God's temple. He wasn't to have done that. And... He should have allowed God to enable someone to do that work, but he chose a, a foreigner to do this work, and that's not what God intended. And with the foreign supervisor came foreign workers, thousands of them, and we're told that it was the mingling of the foreign workers with God's people that caused paganism to come into the country of Israel. Why? Because he didn't trust God to supply the skills needed to do the work as well. Okay? I was quite surprised. When David had urged God's plan, he said, there are workers with you in abundance, woodsmen, stonecutters, and all types of skillful men for every kind of work. But Solomon did not want to, to follow the way that God had led him. Finally, when people speak of Solomon's temple, it's called Solomon's temple. 
He had ostensibly built the temple for the name of the Lord so that the nations would come and, and, and glorify the God of heaven. But in his desire for display, in his going way beyond what was necessary just for selfish purposes, everyone picked up that there was a different motive in what was going on, I believe. And therefore, it became known as Solomon's Temple. And so I want to ask as we come to our final prayer time this evening, again, are you in relationships that you know deep in your heart that God says, this isn't what I want? My friends, when I married Rose, had I told Rose, Rose, I love you and I want to marry you, but you must understand, I'm going to bring some of my old girlfriends to the wedding. Would she have agreed? She would have said no. She would have said, you know, if you're not going to marry me and, and make me your exclusive interest, we're not getting married. And yet many of us come to God with girlfriends from the past, so to speak. If you want to be that spiritual temple of the heart, you must reject all the girlfriends that don't belong there and come with a heart clean so that the Holy Spirit can have full control. And then you must ask, what is it that motivates you? Are you motivated to honor God and do things God's way, which is take up the cross and walk in the narrow way? Or do you want to take the broad way of the world? If you want to be the beautiful temple that has real power with God and with men, you must be willing to take up the cross. You must be willing to let that hard personality kill, the I die, so that you're hidden behind the cross and when you come to church, when you relate to other people, they see Jesus coming through you. What do you think? My brothers and sisters, you have the opportunity to really have a beautiful church in every way. But remember, that which makes your church beautiful is Jesus in your heart. You have just heard one of a multi-part series on the construction and dedication of Solomon's Temple given by myself, Dan Augsburger, at the Stanbro Park Church in the fall of 2015. I pray that it has been a blessing to you. You can find the rest of the presentations at my website, discipleheart.com. Let me spell that for you. Discipleheart, D-I-S-C-I-P-L-E-H-E-A-R-T, discipleheart.com. Perhaps you have a question that you'd like to pose to me directly. If so, feel free to write me at pathtoprayer at gmail.com. Let me give you the spelling, P-A-T-H, number two, P-R-A-Y-E-R, pathtoprayer at gmail.com. Once again, this is Dan Augsburger. Thank you for taking the time to listen. And God bless you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.